0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Occasionally, I will take a walk down memory lane. And one of the ways I do that, I'll pull down my high school annual. Now, most of us know what an annual is, and what I like to do occasionally is look at the superlatives in my class. And what I mean by that, who was most handsome, I didn't get that award, uh, most beautiful, who was most intelligent, who was most likely to succeed. And as I think about that idea of success today, I think about this passage of Scripture that we're looking at. God wants us to be successful. He wants us to achieve the purpose for which He created us. And that happens to be, as you probably know, that He wants us to glorify Him." It's interesting that as I look at my annual, there's only one representative of the most. It's a select group. But in Scripture, God would indicate to you and me that if we know Jesus Christ, each one of us has the capacity to be successful. And God evaluates us on an individual basis. The thing which God looks at is not what we look at. We look at, as human beings, the outward appearance. But God examines the heart. The place where we are told to set apart Christ as Lord by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. Jesus is interested in our putting Him where He alone deserves to be placed. And that is at the center of our lives. John R. W. Stott, a great British ambassador for Christ, in one of his writings said this, Christ is the center of Christianity, all else is circumference. In this passage that we're looking at today, that's really clearly stated, isn't it? By Jesus. And so, as we look at this passage, There are two major emphases that I'm going to make, and under each one there will be some important statements that are made as well. The two major emphases, first of all, beginning with verse 7 and going down through verse 11, is this. It is that Christ alone is the revealer of God. And the rest of the passage from verse 12 through verse 14 is this that Christ is the only genuine representative we have with God. So let's dive into this passage of Scripture and see what we learn about Christ being the only one who is a revealer of God. Look at verse 7 of John chapter 14. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know Him and have seen Him." Let's pause just a moment. Let's fast forward to a statement which Jesus makes in prayer to the Father in John chapter 17. He says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is underscoring here what He emphasizes there That if we know God, and the only way to know Him is through Jesus Christ, the only revealer of God, we know that we are people who have eternal life. Are you for sure that you have eternal life today? Well, there's only one way we can be sure of it, and that's believing what God says, what Jesus says, if we know Him and we know Him as the one true God in the flesh who reveals the Father to us. And here's Philip. Philip said to him in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Now, some of these small words in our Bible are easily passed over for bigger words and bigger concepts, but the phrase, for us, Philip was stating what the other apostles We're asking, Lord, show us the Father. It's amazing that Jesus had been with them for some three years at this point and they still were not fully aware of who Jesus was. He had said it in any number of ways. He had displayed it in many ways also. But they were still wanting for understanding of who Jesus was. In verse 9 says, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? There's some frustration I feel in Christ when he says this. Don't you get it, is what he's saying. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Paul writes this about Jesus in the book of Colossians chapter 1. He says that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. If you know Jesus and have a clear picture of Him, the result is you have a clear picture of God the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, in the third verse, the writer of Hebrews says essentially the same thing about Jesus. That Jesus is the radiance of God. He is the one who really reveals God to us. The book of John is really all about revealing that God is in Christ, and Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. In Greco-Roman philosophical circles at this time, there was a lot of speculations. You know, the only thing a philosopher can do is speculate. It's impossible for a philosopher to give a definite answer about who God is. It's so frustrating. I'm glad I'm not a philosopher. I'm glad I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I know you are too, if you do know Him. And we have that settled in our own hearts as to who God is. But in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, the Apostles' day, when... Philosophers in the Greco-Roman world would speak about God. They would simply, in most circles, call Him the invisible. The Jews of the day also held to the truth of the Old Testament as we know it, their scriptures, where the Bible says in more than one place that no one can see God and live. Or no one can see God because of His being holy, 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 separate from us. But what we do know is in the book of John earlier, in the 18th verse of the first chapter, this is what the Scripture says. John, opining on the person of Christ, says this, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. To whom was He referring? Well, we know He was referring to Jesus. He said, of Jesus' fullness we have all received. We who know Christ are indwelled by Him. That One who is full of grace and truth has come to live in us. Miracle of miracles. And I'll Hopefully go back to that a little later as we work our way through this passage of Scripture. But we do know that Jesus is the revealer of God to us because He is God incarnate, God become man, God in the flesh. Verse 10 says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. To me this is a marvelous and at the same time amazing statement that Jesus makes about His own words. Now, He's God in the flesh. So why can't He come up with His own words? Here's the why. Answered. It's because He... Had to become one of us, he did not lose any of his divinity, his deity, in becoming one of us. What he did do is he emptied himself, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, that does not mean he emptied himself of his deity. What it meant was he yielded to the Father as they had agreed upon in eternity when they were considering what would happen to mankind, and how the redemptive work would occur, that Jesus would strip Himself of His divine prerogatives. His own purpose would be under the purpose of God the Father, just like God created Adam, the first Adam, to be, and Adam, we know, blew it. Jesus was going to live in that kind of relationship to the father fully God but willing to submit himself in every way to him in what he thought and what he said and in what he did so what he's saying to these men look guys when you hear me speak these are the words of the father coming to you it's true for us too isn't it We must never take for granted the Scripture and realize that Jesus speaks to us and it is God speaking by the Holy Spirit through the words of Jesus to us. Verse 11 says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Jesus is working this, isn't He? Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Had Jesus done some impressive works? Why, sure. And the Bible talks in the book of John, in the last part of the book of John, the writer himself says this, if all the things that Jesus said and did were recorded, then there would not be enough room in all the libraries of the world to contain descriptions of what He did, and things which he said. So Jesus Christ alone is the one who reveals God the Father. This is essential for the Christian faith. He's not one of many incarnations of God. He's not some avatar. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. God become man, and we have access to him. So the first thing we've looked at about this person of Christ is that He alone reveals the Father. Secondly, He alone is the representative that we must have in relationship to the Father to become children of God. I'm going to divide this up into two parts, and this is where the Word of God talks about our capacity because we know Christ and because Christ indwells us, we have the capacity to achieve things way beyond the ordinary. We would never be able to achieve things that last forever and have an impact on other people that is more than superficial. It's That which comes right square dab into the middle of who they are and has the capacity to change them. The first thing we're going to look at that Jesus says in this section under the fact that He's our representative is the promise of spiritual success available to everyone who truly puts his or her trust in Christ. So let's look at verse 12. Truly, truly... I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he also will do in greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Latch on to that statement, believes in me. Allow me to interpret it a bit. It's a recurring statement in the Gospel of John. And some have described the Gospel of John as the Gospel of Belief who believes in Me. In this case, it's a present tense statement, meaning, who keeps on believing in Me. We sometimes make a very bad error, talking about people like me who teach the Gospel, people who share the Gospel. This belief is a commitment that is not for an instant, but it's for eternity. And once we believe and trust in Christ alone, We are in a position that is a position of faith, and that faith which was sparked by the Holy Spirit in our heart, and when we responded to God's overture, to trust in Him, and Jesus calling us to believe in Him, that brought into our lives the opportunity, it's an awesome opportunity to continue to believe in Him, And the word in, in verse 12, believe in me. We've looked at this before too, but I want to repeat it again because Jesus repeats it over and over. Believes in the word in is literally in the language of the New Testament, into. Believes into me. The word for believe stresses personal commitment. The word translated in, and I'm translating it literally into, implies motion toward and rest in an object or a person. Put together, they suggest constant motion toward an unbroken rest in Jesus. I cannot help, having given that definition or explanation, to think about Christ's call to be a disciple. He says, if anyone wishes, after, wishes to come after me, what's the first thing must, we must do? Deny ourselves... Second thing, take up our crosses daily. And finally, follow me is what Jesus says. The only one of those commands are statements as to what constitutes being a follower of Christ that is in the present tense is the word follow. Follow me. Keep on following me. Denying myself, it's a decision that's decisive and it applies in that moment, and then ability to take up the cross, meaning follow Christ in the sense of wanting our lives to count for the redemption of the world that Christ will use us. But we keep on following Christ. With that in mind, listen to what I mentioned just a moment ago. Together, the word believe, Jesus uses here in the 12th verse of John 14, and the word in or in they suggest constant motion toward an unbroken rest in Jesus. We are following Jesus. Do you ever get tired of following Jesus? Well, I do sometimes. It's part of, I'm not recommending it, by the way. My tiredness is part of a failure to understand whose power I'm supposed to draw on to keep following. I have to draw on the power of the Spirit of God. We sang a little earlier, more love, more power, more of you in my life. I take exception with the last line. More love, yes. More power, yes. But more of you in my life. The Bible says, of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. When Christ came to indwell you by His Spirit, He came totally into your life. So how do we explain the disparity between what we see in Christ and in our own lives? Well, we understand that disparity, and there are two contributing factors, and they really overlap, if not intertwined. Here's here's the deal. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not full-grown immediately. You start out as a baby. And babies need time to mature. I'm not trying to give you an excuse for not being more powerful in your relationship to Christ or close to Christ. But what I'm saying is, is what the Word of God says. You start as a baby and you mature. You grow. How do you grow? First Peter 2 2 tells us very clearly, by desiring the pure milk of the Word of God, we are to live on the truths of who Jesus is and how He wants us to display His love and His promises in the world. And then here's another factor. We still have internally that which the Bible calls the flesh the flesh is human personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God that's what gets me discouraged in my life there's another element we have an enemy we have an internal enemy what is it our own flesh the residue of the old life in a sense But what we know is we don't have to be defined by the flesh. Do you know the Apostle Paul wrestled with his flesh? Are you aware of that? In the book of Romans chapter 7, he says it this way, the things I want to do, I don't do. Do you ever feel like that? I'm talking about spiritually. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do are those things that are contrary to the will of God. Now we know Paul was a mighty man of God. He was used tremendously by God. But when we look at what he has to say in detail, uh, his autobiographical comments about himself, I'm only gonna mention one. In Romans 15, 18, listen to what he says. I will not presume to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Was Paul successful as a follower of Christ? Absolutely. But the only time he was successful is when he recognized that apart from Jesus Christ, he could do nothing. But through Christ, these are the words of Paul that you're familiar with in the book of Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So those things which hinder me sometimes in my walk are my own fleshliness, my own selfishness, if you want to simplify it, my own selfishness and wanting my way and my own whiny, 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 why, Lord, to the Lord. That hinders me. But also, it's an absence of feeding on the Word of God. I know that if I stopped eating, it wouldn't be long before I would die. Right? Now fortunately, the analogy breaks down because if you know Christ, you're never going to die. You've been born again, and you're forever alive. But your walk and my walk can pretty well shrivel up because we're not eating the Word of God, listening to the words of Christ. Spiritual achievement, spiritual success will be realized by people who hear the word of Christ and obey the word of Christ. In the book of 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to read two verses, 21 and 22 of 1 John 3. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. We cannot expect to be people who are confident followers of Christ and people through whom the Lord will produce results that glorify Him. The word fruit is often used of those results. Character and otherwise. The spiritual success of obedient Christians will include and outstrip the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. This is phenomenal. Let's read beginning at the be- first of verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. He's going to the Father for what purpose? To represent you and me. He's going there to ascend the throne that He occupied before He became one of us and had occupied throughout eternity. He's gone back to His rightful position on the throne beside God the Father. But what He's doing there for you and me, He's living, according to the book of Hebrews 7, verse 25, to make intercession for us. He pleads our case before the Father. He pleads with the Father that the Father would be sure not to ex us out of the kingdom because of our failures in sin from time to time. What sort of works did Christ do? He said, you're going to do the works I did. What were those works? Well, they were miraculous, weren't they? Amazing. Just in the book of John. But they were... In the physical realm, those miracles, a miracle is some kind of aberration, some kind of thing that happens that's not common in the laws of nature. It just they supersede the laws of nature. Jesus displayed control over the inanimate part of creation, things. In the book of John, he turned water into wine. In the book of John, in the fifth chapter, he fed 5,000 people plus probably some of their dependents because a little boy gave some fish and some bread that his mother had sent in a sack lunch, so to speak, to that place. And he fed them all and there were 12 baskets full that were left over. Wow! That's... Amazing, isn't it? A miracle. He showed His power over the creation. He walked on water. We see this also in the Gospel of John. He displayed His control over the animate part of His creation too. There was a 38-year-old man. You'll recall it. For 30... He was not 38. Excuse me. I made a mistake. For 38 years, this man had been crippled. He could remember when he could walk, but some disease or accident left him unable to walk. And so Jesus comes when he comes to a celebratory time in Jerusalem. And instead of going to where all the action is, he makes his way to the pool of Siloam. This was a pool of water where people, like the man in question, would go and sit day in, day out because once a year it was thought that the angel of the Lord would come and stir the waters of that pool and the first person who was in the water when that happened would be cured of illness. For 38 years, someone picked him up, took him to the place, came back in the evening, took him home. What a boring life. What a difficult life. For him, I thought often of the caregivers. They would have gotten tired after a while, wouldn't they? 38 years? It's a long time, isn't it? And then Jesus asks him, for me, when I read it the first time, an unexpected question. Do you want to get well? And I might have said if I were in his shoes, duh. <laughs> yeah. But... By asking that question, you know, Jesus has insights into us. Nobody else has. And he knew that he had grown accustomed to being cared for like that. He didn't have any decisions to make. He didn't have any bills to pay. He just was in that situation. Somebody did everything for him. Amazing. But he did say, yeah. He basically said, yeah, I I want. And the Lord healed him. He got up, took up his pallet, and walked. What a testimony he was. You know the nobleman's son also in the Gospel? This boy was on his deathbed. The nobleman comes to Jesus and pleads for his son's healing, and the Lord did it. Also, the blind man who'd been blind from birth, it's the only instance in the Bible where someone born blind has sight restored. And he said to him, I am the light of the world see, and he saw. And then Lazarus in the 11th chapter, he was dead, he was brought back to life. The greatest of all, the miracles. The miracles of Jesus, primarily, that they had seen, the works that he did, were in the physical realm. There is a book entitled, God Was It Dunkirk? Some of you saw the movie Dunkirk, maybe five years ago, four years ago. And it depicts what was happening in World War II. The United States had yet to enter the war. The Third Reich was moving at blitzkrieg motion across Europe. They had crushed the Maginot line, the line of defense in France, and nothing except the English Channel stood before them and total defeat and conquest of Great Britain. King George VI issued a prayer request. It was really a command. Pray for God to deliver us. And then along with that prayer, he said, and if you have a boat, a fishing boat, a pleasure boat, what I would plead with you to do is take that boat and cross the channel and help deliver some of the 370,000 soldiers, most of whom are Brits, but there were others from places like Belgium and France and other places, that those people can get to safety. What an undertaking. What a request. Pray, he said. Pray for them. And then make your own capacities as it relates to transporting them across the channel available to them something miraculous happened and the book entitled God was at Dunkirk describes it you don't hear historians describe it but what they say is it was because people all over Great Britain and probably some in the US and maybe in France and Belgium and other associated countries began to pray and they said Lord give us a miracle and God gave a miracle the miracle was number one there was a storm, a front that stalled out right on the edge of the movement of Hitler's army. And they couldn't move because of the bad weather, inclement weather. And at the same time, on the other side of that front, the surface of the English Channel was as smooth as silk. And so all this fleet of military vessels, And individual boats went across. And they were able, in a matter of 24 or so hours, to bring all those soldiers back. Many people believe it was the turning point of World War II. Prayer is the catalyst of great works. Great works, of course, in the physical realm. And before feeding the 5,000, before raising Lazarus, what we oversee and overhear Jesus doing is this. He was praying to the Father, and the Father answered His prayer. Even Jesus prayed to the Father. And Christ is in us. And Christ pleads our case to the Father, but also He pleads to the Father for others as well. So it must be with us. Greater works than these shall He do. How can anyone do greater works than these that Christ did. Have you ever stopped to think about this? This is really a riddle for us, isn't it? To figure out how does this work? Well, his miracles were parallel, but not to the extent that we see them in his life. But the early church and the apostles, they did a lot of miracles. God used them from the miraculous. But what we need to understand is that our Lord Jesus Christ did a great work in these people's lives. These works that are promised to be greater are greater in in importance because they are works in the spiritual and as well as in the physical realm. Now think about Christ with me for just a moment. He lived His entire ministry in an area of land no larger than the state of Connecticut. If I had been writing the script for Jesus, I would have had him all over the map, wouldn't you? But he lived all those years in that place, with the exception of when Joseph and Mary took him away at the urging of the angel of the Lord for protection from Herod the Great, and they went to Egypt. Without exception, he spent that time. In the 7th chapter of Mark, he crosses the Sea of Galilee and goes to the Decapolis, which was a Gentile area. So he's really outside of Israel, but in the general area. And so what we need to see here, that the things that God has done, let me be more specific. The things which Jesus Christ has done since he died on the cross, since he was raised from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father and intercedes for us. And He lives in our hearts at the same time. We're in Him and He is in us. And we trust in Him. Those things He is still doing. This is not our work in the strictest sense of the word. It's His work through us because He lives in us. And if we put our trust in Him, He will use you and me as surely as He used the apostles and the vast number of people who were saved. Now let's think about Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved in one day from one sermon from the apostle Peter. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is describing people who saw Christ in His post-resurrection body, we see that there were only about 500 people who saw him. To the casual observer, without the history that we have available to us in our own personal relationship to him, it would seem as though, if that's all the information we had, Jesus was a flop. 500 people in three and a half years? Is that all you can do, Jesus? Well, no, it's not. Because Jesus knew what he was going to do through the apostles, like Peter. All those men spread out all over the known world and some places beyond. And when they left, they took what Jesus had told them to heart. When He says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, the world. And they spread the gospel around. The excitement of the sick was unrestrained when they heard Christ was coming their way. But the deliverance from the illnesses were temporary. The leper became wrinkled with old age and died. Lazarus died again. But if a person is turned from sin to God, the results are permanent. The pain from which the gospel saves is far greater than than that which disease in this world can inflict. The worm that never dies is more unbearable than the worst disease known to mankind. The fire that never quenches is keener than that of any fever. Those who Jesus Christ healed were not at the cross. The disciples themselves, with the exception of John, had booked But after Pentecost, the Spirit of God came, and the resurrection, of course, precedes Pentecost, and the resurrected Christ came to indwell them as He said He would. After that, they went abroad, and so many thousands of people came to faith through their witness. And those converts braved many horrible things in the name of Christ, and they died as martyrs. Do you know that in the 19th, 20th century, more people who call themselves Christians have died than all the other centuries put together for their faith in Christ. We have very little understanding or appreciation. These greater works have to do with conversions. We know that. We've seen it. That great work of the Spirit of God, which we know as Pentecost there were 120 followers of Jesus who for ten days prayed and fasted. Have you ever prayed and fasted for ten hours? We're doing well to do ten minutes of that, aren't we? Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, was asked, why all the success of your ministry 6,000 people would come to hear the man preach twice. And that was not the big deal. The Holy Spirit would move and people got converted every time he preached. And his simple answer to the question as to the secret of his success, he said, my people pray for me. 500 people would gather under the stage upon which this man Spurgeon would stand and preach the gospel. And they prayed throughout the entire time he was preaching. No wonder. They were interceding. Greater works than these you will do. That's what Jesus says. And it will be borne out, of course, in history. Let's now go and look as we complete our time together this morning at this very important part of what we're considering. And that is, we know that the power for promise of spiritual achievement or success is related to our putting our faith in the Lord. And the power is available through praying in Christ's name. Let's look at verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What a promise. Yes, Lord, I want to understand that. What does that mean, praying in your name? I'm going to give you three things that are suggested when the idea of praying in the name of Christ is raised. The first of which is it has to be according to his will. And Inherent in that is according to His authority. Christ has unlimited influence with the Father. We have none on our own, but in Christ's name, it's as if Christ is coming to the Father. We must go through Christ to pray for our Father on the basis of His works, Christ's works, not our works. The Bible talks in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, that through Christ, we have access by the power of the Holy Spirit to the Father. We pray to the Father. Who helps us to pray? Holy Spirit. Read about it in Romans 8, 26 and 27. But who is the intercessor? Who is the One? who is there pleading our case, well, it is none other than Jesus Himself. Christ is asking the favor for us, God's favor. And the Father hears when Jesus asks and answers. We must go through Jesus to pray to our Father on the basis of His works, not ours, but also when we ask in Christ's name, we admit our impotence apart from him we have no innate claim on God but Christ Jesus does and we have become the children of God because of who Christ is so to pray in his name means to pray with his authority and his will how do we know the will of God how do we do it it's in the Word of God, isn't it? It's not rocket science. Read the book. And fellowship with God, the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God will display His will to you. He'll let you know. Just like any good father or mother on earth, the a child comes and asks, what do you want me to do? You always tell them, don't you? Certainly you do. Why? You love them. And our love for our children pales in comparison to God the Father's love for us. God responds to prayers offered in Christ's name because they glorify Him. That's what Jesus says. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. When you ask in My name, I will do it. And notice who does it. This is very important. He doesn't say you will do it. What does He say? I will do it. I will intercede for you, but I will also give you the power to live the life God wants you to live, to overcome your flesh, to overcome your tiresomeness in your life from time to time. So prayer isn't our getting something from God, but God's getting something from us, namely our praise. I read about a man who was Australian, and he was a Christian, by name at least. And he listened to the preaching of a great preacher in his day, a man named R.A. Torrey. And he was not able to talk to Dr. Torrey, but he wrote a letter to him. And he said, in very succinct matter, I have been asking God to answer prayer for me for many years. For 30 years I've been an active member in my church. He named the denomination. 25 of those years I've been the superintendent of Bible study in my church as a layman. 20 years I have served as an elder in the church. Can you tell me, sir, why my prayers are not being answered? And in a very clear way, Dr. Torrey responded by saying, Sir, the answer is obvious. You've been praying and asking in your name for being a good church member, for being a Sunday school worker, for being an elder. It's not in your name. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a subtle difference. And we need to understand that it's a difference that is Subtle, Yes, but it's that which separates us from really knowing God's presence, power, and answer. An answer that will not glorify God won't be given to us. So we must certainly understand that. So we have to pray according to the will of God slash in the authority of God. But also we have to remember that we pray in keeping with His nature. That's what the word name, character, or nature... And these are interrelated, these reasons I'm giving to you. When Christ went to heaven, He left His work in our hands. And He left His name so we, along with the long line of disciples throughout history, could have power for spiritual success on earth because we trust in Jesus Christ alone about three weeks ago we were approached I was at least by someone who was in need financially and the person lived in another state and so we evaluated namely some of the elders evaluated it and we concluded it was a worthy request how are we going to get the money there though because the money was needed because surgery was to be done and in this particular case before the surgeon would do the surgery he had to have the money in hand so I talked to Ron Acton who's acting as our administrative pastor and one of our dear elders in the church and Ron made his living as a bank officer for many years I said Ron how do I do this he said well let's go down to your bank and the good news was the bank that i bank in is the bank that the one who would receive the money banks in so we went down there and we told the person who received us and the person said do you have an appointment now and sit down over there and then this gentleman came he was very cordial and trying to help us and five ten minutes passed and then i said let me get he came back over I said well let me get my debit card out he says oh you're a person who has an account here. I said, yes, I do. He said, no problem. You didn't have to go through all this rigmarole because if you have money in the bank enough to cover the cost, then all you have to do is put your card in, designate the amount, and just like that, it's transferred to the account. You know, that's the way we are spiritually. We have unlimited resources. And they're not for our glory. They're not for discretionary use. They are resources, and I'm not talking about money now, I'm just talking about spiritual things. We have a relationship with the heavenly banker, the Father, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. And we are to be willing to pray for other people in this whole matter of knowing according to His nature, according to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to conclude with a story that really captures the idea as beautifully as anything I've ever seen when it comes to praying in the name of Christ. The time was the 1860s. The place was Columbus, Ohio a family which was a very prominent family in Columbus. The man of the house was a very successful businessman. The family was held in high standing in their community, including their church. They had one son. They wished they had more children, but God did not grant them any children. The Civil War had broken out, the boy reached the age when he could enlist in the Union Army. He came to his father and said, Father, I want to join the military and fight for the freedom and of the Union and the continuation of the Union. his father said, Yes, son, you have my approval. And there was a sense of, really, gratitude in the father's ha- heart as well as the mother's heart, but sort of a pride welled up in the father heart knowing that his son was willing to put his life on the line the young man joined went to his first station of duty and every day he would write a letter to his parents every day he was so faithful to write and tell what was going on and so forth until one day no letter that day became a week and that week became a month and they had accepted what was the inevitable their son had been either severely wounded he couldn't write or had been killed representative of the government came to their house one day with a letter in hand expressing the condolences that the president and those in power were sending because the son had in fact died the light went out in their hearts really they loved him so much the war ended and one day as they still were in grief the grief seemed interminable the lady who worked in their home to help them with household chores came and they were sitting at the table eating a meal which she had prepared and she said there's a man outside and he looks like a tramp and he's knocking on the back door he would like to talk to you And I said, you can't come in here because he was just a vagrant as far as they were concerned. At least the woman was. And then she said, but he did give me me a letter. And I have it and I want to hand it to you. And I want to read the letter. Their son's name was Charles. And this is a very brief letter he wrote to them. Dear father and mother, I have been shot and have only a short time to live, and I am writing you this last farewell note. As I write, there is kneeling beside me my most intimate friend in the company, and when the war is over, he will bring you this note, and when he does, be kind to him for Charlie's sake, your son Charles. From that day forward, that young man who delivered the note lived as a son in the house of that couple who lost their loved one for the sake of Charlie. In Charlie's name, we are outside of Christ just as much a vagrant as Charlie was when he came, but all that had to be presented was that letter of authentication and of approval how that man had been a comrade of his. Look, when you know Jesus Christ, he has given us our letter of admission. And do you know what he puts on everybody? I mean, I'm making this up, so just forget about it. I'm going to say it anyway. And don't take it as the truth. But I can imagine his putting most likely to succeed stamp on every one who comes to Christ. Because who is really doing the work? It's Jesus in us who does the work. Our responsibility is to yield to Him. This is the secret of the Christian life, and if you never get it, I'm so sorry for you. It's not that it's something that's archaic. It's not something that's sort of esoteric, mysterious. It's something that's true for us as surely as it was for the first apostles. And praise God that He wants to use you and me to bring glory to Him by expanding the Gospel. And we can pray in Jesus' name. Do you have a better idea what that means? Praying dependence upon Him. Praying in according to His will. Praying that which Christ would pray apart from us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask in Your name that we would be men and women who are known for Your presence in our lives. And we want to spend ourselves in meaningful service so that one day when we stand before You, we will hear that word of affirmation, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank You, Father. Amen. Amen. God bless you.